Well, who is it that can sing with confidence that song that we have just sung? I'll fly away some glad morning when this life is over. I'll fly away. Think about what the scripture teaches about the end of this life and what awaits the faithful and that is the heavenly escort by the angels of God into the paradise of God to await the final judgment and to ultimately enjoy the splendors of heaven throughout all eternity. That is something that only a certain group of people can anticipate. Who are they? They are the righteous. And tonight as we continue our study of Psalm 119, there is an emphasis in the paragraph that we will be studying, these eight verses, an emphasis on righteousness. And certainly a study of these verses should should increase and intensify our appreciation for righteousness. For those who are righteous living among us, but most especially for the perfect righteousness That is characteristic of the God whom we serve. Psalm 119, 137. In this paragraph of eight verses, as we have mentioned before, each paragraph is represented by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each one of these eight verses, representing this particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each one begins with that letter of that Hebrew alphabet. Alphabet. We don't recognize that obviously in English, but we would if we were looking at Hebrew. At least some who knew Hebrew would. I wouldn't recognize it in Hebrew because I don't know Hebrew. But it begins, each verse does, with that same letter that you see probably above that heading in your Bibles as I have it above mine, represented as we would use it in English as TZ, uh, that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But righteousness is the theme here. Look with me, scan these verses and see that righteousness is emphasized. Verse 137 begins with the word righteous. The next verse, verse 138, has the word righteous in it. Down at verse 142, righteousness is there twice in that verse. And then in verse 144, the word righteousness is found again. Obviously, there is an emphasis upon righteousness. And what is righteousness, or what does it mean to be righteous? I mentioned before that the late guy in Wood said the best definition he could come up with for righteousness is doing right. Doing right. A simple but very appropriate definition. To be righteous is to be one who is doing right. But despite our best efforts to do right, we do fall short at times. But thanks be to God, we are made whole spiritually through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed and the sacrifice that he made and the blood that continually cleanses those who are walking in the light as God is in the light who recognize their shortcomings despite their efforts to to be perfect, because that should be our goal, perfection, and yet we know we fall short. But as we do fall short, as we keep up our walk and our effort to be as godlike as we can, more so each day, we confess our sins and shortcomings to the throne of heaven through Jesus Christ, 
and we can be characterized as righteous before God because of the perfect righteousness of the one who became the perfect sacrifice for us. And in this section of this beautiful psalm, the psalmist exalts the righteousness of God. We've entitled this entire study of the 119th Psalm, Exalting the Word. But here there is not only an exaltation by the psalmist of of the Word, because it is certainly here, and you see the connection between righteousness and the Word, but there is also a very clear exaltation by the writer of the one who gave us that Word, of the one who revealed His will, His Word to us, the God of heaven. Thus the psalmist begins, Righteous are you, O Lord. But notice how quickly he ties that righteousness to the word that he is exalting in every line, in every stanza, in every verse of this beautiful psalm. And upright are your judgments. You are perfect in righteousness, the psalmist is declaring. God is perfect in righteousness. He is the epitome of righteousness. He is the standard of righteousness. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, Be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our righteousness seeks to emulate the righteousness of of God. As we've already stated, we fall short of perfection, but we're made whole and complete in Jesus Christ our Lord. But the psalmist explains or exalts the righteousness of God and ties it quickly to his judgments His word, judgment simply being another word for his commandments, for his testimonies, for his statutes, the various terms that the psalmist uses throughout this beautiful psalm to describe the all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God. Upright are your judgments. Upright. They are fair. They are just. They are equitable. They show no favoritism. They have equal application to all. Now, we keep in mind that as we study the judgments about which the psalmist, David, if David be the author of this psalm, and many believe he was, these judgments are the judgments that no longer pertain to us in terms of the law of Moses, now being uh, no longer in effect. But the principle concerning God's judgments is just as valid today as it was when the psalmist, by inspiration, penned these words. The application for us is that the judgments that are upright that apply to us are those judgments that are the New Testament, the New Covenant. But as we look back upon the Old Covenant, we understand that those judgments, as the psalmist has expressed, were upright. They were righteous, they were equitable, they were perfect as God intended them to be. And we add, as God intended them to be, because God never intended for the law about which the psalmist speaks here or writes here, God never intended for that law to be the ultimate and final law because it was a law that could not be kept perfectly and therefore demanded, demanded a new and better covenant ushered in by the blood that was shed upon Calvary by the perfect sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ. But it was perfect to do exactly what God wanted it to do. It accomplished exactly what God wanted it to accomplish. And it did allow righteous individuals living under that covenant to be blameless before God and to anticipate, as it were, the ultimate cleansing, 
that would come from the sacrifice that would be shed on Calvary that would cleanse those who lived under this covenant and under the covenant preceding this, the patriarchal dispensation. Because as we have said often, the blood that was shed on Calvary flowed, as it were, backward to cleanse the righteous under these former dispensations and continues to flow to cleanse all those who will come to God through Christ in this final dispensation, the New Testament, through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what is expressed here concerning the testimonies, concerning the judgments, concerning the commandments, the various terms that are used for the law of God, they have clear application to us under the new covenant as they had application to the writer under this dispensation. And it is a simple reminder of how complete and perfect all of God's revelation to man has always been and always will be, accomplishing exactly what God wanted it to accomplish, achieving exactly what he wanted it to achieve. But he begins with the righteousness of God himself. You are righteous, and your judgments are upright. If you look over a little bit later in this same psalm at 160, verse 160, what is expressed here in verse 137 reminds us of what he later expresses at verse 160. The New King James renders it, the entirety of your word is truth. The American Standard says the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The righteous judgments, the judgments that apply, always endure. They never change. He'll emphasize that in this paragraph that we're studying tonight as well. And then in verse 138, he continues, Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. It's sad to think about those who have cast aspersions upon the Word of God and tried to claim that the God of heaven is anything but righteous, that he was some sort of tyrant under the old covenant, that he punished people in ways that were dictatorial and tyrannical and that were in no way fair. The recent debates with Kyle Butt uh, that Kyle has conducted with some of these atheists, that's been the accusation that has uh, been made. God is depicted by the atheist as being someone whom we should not really want to serve based upon the Old Testament description of him. It's a totally unfair characterization, obviously, of the God of heaven. This is the fair characterization that the psalmist by inspiration gives. You are righteous. You are righteous, O Lord, and so are your judgments. So are your testimonies. And notice, he does not write in verse 138, your testimonies, which you have suggested, are righteous and very faithful. You don't read that in your Bible, I hope. Your commandments, which you have suggested. No, as people have talked about the Ten Commandments, they are not the Ten Suggestions. Well, they were the Ten Commandments. They are the commandments of the Lord. There are those who find the idea of commandments repugnant. And they want to view this book as more of a suggestion book rather than a book that is filled with commandments. It is and always has been a book of commandments from Old Testament to New. And those commandments are specific. Does it not make sense that if the psalmist could write your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful, that they are specific, that they were knowable, that they were doable, 
that he could understand them, that he could obey them. And in fact, he'll express that further in the very last verse of this paragraph as he prays, as it were, for understanding. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. They are righteous and very faithful. There is an expression here in this particular paragraph of of overwhelming joy and satisfaction and delight on the part of the psalmist about the very nature of God's Word. He is, as it were, almost beside himself with joy over the very nature of the commandments of God and how reliable they are and how comforting they are, as we'll see in a few uh, verses from now where he talks about his own condition being small and despised and being in trouble and in anguish and yet what the Word of God means to him during those times. The psalmist is overjoyed, as it were, just overwhelmed with the nature of God's Word. But should the psalmist who penned these words be any more overwhelmed or any more overjoyed with what the Word of God was able to do in his life than we should be about what the Word of God is able to do and has done or can do if it hasn't done it already in our lives. When we live in a time far, far superior to the time in which the psalmist penned these words because he speaks of a covenant that was not the new and better covenant that the Hebrews writer does write abundantly about and expresses joy over the superior nature of the covenant under which you and I live versus the covenant about which the psalmist was so impressed. How much more so should we be, in other words? And how much more attentive should we be to the study of the Word of God that can bring about in us the kind of reaction that it evoked within the writer of this beautiful psalm. Now I want you to notice something vitally important in the very next verse. Verse 139. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have attacked me personally. Doesn't read that way, does it? My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. What an attitude. What an attitude. And how important it is that we not miss what he's saying here. And how important it is that we spend as much time as we can developing the very same kind of attitude ourselves. What is that attitude? The attitude that is deeply concerned about the rejection of God's Word by the vast majority of those living today, those who've lived before, and tragically, yes, those who will live in the future. It should cause us deep concern. You remember righteous Lot, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, whom Peter said vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the unlawful deeds of those people with whom he lived. 
He vexed his righteous soul from day to day. I've mentioned this principle before, and I have said, and I say again, that while we should have deep concern about the sin that surrounds us, we cannot allow that concern to cause us to become discouraged and forget the Word. Nor can we allow that concern to destroy the joy that we have in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Can one rejoice in the Lord always and have his zeal consume him because of the sin that surrounds him? Yes. It's completely consistent. It's completely consistent. Because you see, those who are righteous and those who have the deepest appreciation for righteousness are those who are going to be most concerned about the unrighteousness that characterizes this community, this state, this nation, this world. And we'll do all that we can to be an influence for good to turn things around. But this is an attitude worthy of emulation. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. They have rejected the word. Notice he doesn't say, though he could have said accurately, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten you. But saying my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words is equivalent to saying because my enemies have forgotten you. Because you can't forget God without forgetting his word and you can't forget his word without forgetting God because the two are inseparable. And it's tragic that we live in a time where many people think they are separable. And that I can have a deep appreciation and a love for God and a personal relationship with God and spend precious or no time at all with this book. I've known individuals, I can think of one right now, who believed she had such a wonderful personal relationship with God and yet this book was a book in which she had absolutely no confidence and actually criticized, and yet she thought that she had a personal relationship with God. She could love God, and he loved her, and yet she did not have to be concerned at all, really, about this book, because she thought it had been mistranslated and mishandled, and therefore it couldn't be relied upon. Well, I'm not denying that it has at times been mishandled and mistranslated, but I hold in my hand a good translation, and I trust you hold in your hand a good one. There are good translations, therefore there is the Word of God that can be relied upon. So I know that there are those who claim a relationship with God while denying that this is His Word. But the psalmist, in his expression, reminds us that you cannot reject God, you cannot respect God and reject His Word. You cannot respect God and reject His Word at the same time because once you reject His Word, you've disrespected God because they are inseparable. And then he adds, your Word is very pure. Your Word is very pure. Therefore, your servant Loves it. Again, that's that overwhelming expression of the power and the purity of the Word of God, the faithfulness. It is very faithful. Look back up at verse 30, 138. 
It is what? Very pure. Verse 140. Pure as if refined by the process by which precious metals are refined. And that's the idea here. If you go back to an earlier psalm, Psalm 12, at verse 6, a similar expression is found. Listen to it. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Purified seven times. Why seven times? Because the number seven is a a number that represents perfection or completion in Scripture. And so the psalmist is emphasizing just how pure the Word of God is. It is like silver. It is like silver that has been tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. It's as pure as pure can be. But that does remind us of how important it is that we hold in our hands and that we study every day a translation of the word that is truly just that. There are things I could put in my hands that claim to be Bibles that are a far cry from being the word of God. They are commentaries in effect, paraphrases, dynamic equivalent is the procedure that has been used, dynamic equivalence. That is, we're not concerned, the translators were not concerned about a literal translation. They weren't concerned about bringing over a word from the original Greek or Hebrew into the equivalent English word. They just kind of wanted to get in the ballpark. Maybe the idea of it, dynamic equivalence. I don't want a Bible that has been translated using the dynamic equivalent method. And there are those that have done that. And so we do need to be careful in the choosing of a translation. But there are translations, as I mentioned earlier, where the translators were determined to bring over the word from the original language into the equivalent English as closely as possible and as consistently as possible. And therefore, we can have confidence that we hold in our hand a word that is very pure. Then in verse 141, he writes, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. I am small and despised. Now think about it. If David is the author of this psalm, he was a king for 40 years of his life king, and yet he was a very humble man, and he was a man who was despised by many. He was a man who made his mistakes, and there were consequences that were brought upon him because of his mistakes, but he was also the man who was called the man after God's own heart, because he had the kind of heart that when confronted with sin, he turned from that sin, and he turned back to God. He was persecuted for righteousness, despised, and yet he makes a very important point. Despite that persecution, despite being considered small by others, maybe a statement of his own recognition of his genuine humility. We're not sure what is meant by small, but he said nonetheless, regardless of circumstances, yet I do not forget your precepts. 
when we think about being despised or persecuted for righteousness, is it not generally the case that those who hold to the very pure word of God and who seek to live their lives by that word are going to run into difficulties at times from others who do not appreciate that and who will persecute you because of that in various ways, to in, in various degrees. And remember 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. When you are small in the eyes of others, when you are despised in the eyes of others because of your stand for the truth, how will you respond? How do you respond? David says, yet I do not forget your precepts. I'm consistent in following the commandments of God. People in the Lord's church are facing particular challenges today, and you know something? Many of those challenges are coming from within the church. Many of the challenges that you and I face that could be characterized as being persecuted, as being despised, are coming. Many of those challenges, many of those attacks, if you will, are coming from within. They are coming from those in the church today, tragically, and I wish this were not true, but it is. They're coming from those in the church who have become, for want of a better word in their view, enlightened while you remain unenlightened. They have awakened to the new hermeneutic, if you will, the new way of looking at Scripture, they have awakened to grace which you know nothing about, truly and really. And preachers have been accused of never preaching over the years on grace, the way some preachers are claiming they're preaching about it today. There are all sorts of straw men that are being erected, and there is an attitude that is far too prevalent in the Lord's church today that basically says to you, if you are taking a strong stand for truth, that you need to wake up. That you need to wake up. And some of those, some of those challenges are coming from within families. Some of them are coming from children who want their parents to wake up, so to speak, to become enlightened as they have become enlightened. Some are coming from longtime friends. Some may be coming from parents to their children rather than the other way around. But that is occurring. And if you've been in the church very long and if you're active in the church, you know that I am speaking the truth here. And the great temptation, the great temptation in the face of these challenges will be to capitulate. The great temptation will be to forget his precepts and to, quote, wake up as the change agents want you to do. It's not truly waking up. Tragically, it would be going to sleep spiritually to cave to that kind of pressure. And yet that's what we face in the church from many, on many fronts. Doesn't mean that we have to be 
overly, and we must not be and cannot be overly strict in our application of God's Word. We just need to be as narrow-minded as the Lord was and is. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Was Jesus narrow-minded? Absolutely. He was narrow-minded. And I want to be as narrow-minded as the Lord was and is. How narrow is that? It relates to the narrow way, the difficult gate, into which the Lord himself said in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, few will enter, and many will spurn it, and many will go the broad way. And at times it will be those of our own family, those of our close friends, and we must continue to love them, but we dare not follow them. Because if we continue to love them, we must do all that we can to get them to see that it is not they who are the enlightened, but that they have actually transitioned into darkness. And what a tragic transition that is. And it doesn't generally happen overnight, does it? It happens over a long period of time. A long period of time. I couldn't help but think of those things as I was looking at this particular verse. I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts, nor must we. No matter who despises us or looks down upon us or views us as spiritual sticks in the mud or whatever term they may choose, we must make sure that we're staying with the book, nothing more, nothing less, and that we're doing so with the attitude that God would have us to demonstrate in our lives. Verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the righteousness of God is everlasting? I've known righteous people in my life, and I know that you've known righteous people in your life. And yet I also know that some whom I've known who were righteous, who I thought would continue to be righteous, are anything but righteous now. Because righteousness among men tragically can and does change at times to unrighteousness. The righteousness of God is not like that. It is everlasting. The righteousness of God will never, never change. Malachi 3.6, remember, I am the Lord, I change not. The nature of God doesn't change. He's consistent. He is consistent. And His righteousness is everlasting. Hebrews 13.8 reminds us concerning Jesus, is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's tragic that some have tried to use that passage to claim the continuation of miracles today. Well, Jesus did miracles and he's, when he lived among men, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, so therefore miracles are today and forever. It has nothing to do with the miraculous. It has everything to do with the nature of Christ 
as does Malachi 3.6 in dealing with the nature of God the Father. Their righteousness is everlasting. Their law is truth. You know, there are those who, who are concerned about truth but have no concern about law. They believe they can have truth without having law. You can't have truth without having law. The law is truth and truth is law. And that's what the psalmist reminds us of here. And then in verse 143, he says, Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Literally, the word overtaken means just found me. And think about something. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. In other words, they have pursued me and they found me. Tell me that if you live very long, that the same thing won't happen to you. It will. It will, and it has. And there are many people, perhaps every single one of us in here tonight, who could say, oh yes, I can identify with that. Trouble and anguish have found me in the past. They have overtaken me. You cannot outrun trouble and anguish. I don't care how fast you run and how far you run, trouble and anguish will eventually catch up to you and they will overtake you if you live very long. We know that. The key is, what will we do when trouble and anguish catch up with us? How will we respond? Will we allow trouble and anguish to cause us to forget the commandments of the Lord? Will we allow trouble and anguish to cause us to turn away from God? Whatever that trouble is, whatever that anguish is, and you know as well as I that there have been those who have allowed trouble and anguish to cause them to turn their backs upon God and to turn their backs upon the Lord's church. But the psalmist says, in the second part of the verse, after saying, trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. Even when trouble and anguish overtake me, and they will, if you have delighted and continue to delight in the word of God, you can deal with that trouble and anguish without forsaking the God of heaven in that time. In fact, in that time, you will turn to God and rely more deeply than ever, perhaps, upon Him to help you through, through His people, through His Word, and that Word that you have implanted in your heart that will help you during those troublesome times, especially. And then finally, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Notice how he ties life to understanding. It's not a question of having a Bible that brings life. It's what you do with it that brings life, isn't it? It's how you apply it. It's whether or not you understand it. And we have said before that understanding is something that is indeed possible. Otherwise, why would it have been commanded as it was by Paul, for example, in the Ephesian letter at chapter 5 and verse 17, 
where he says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And a few chapters earlier, at chapter uh, 3 and verse 4, he talks about, in the previous verse, verse 3, the revelation that was given to him, and he said, By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. When you read this, you can understand it. Don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And therefore, if we apply ourselves to the study of the Word of God with a proper attitude, we'll come away with an understanding, and with that understanding, we will have life. What about you tonight? Have you applied yourself to the understanding of the Word of God? And based upon that understanding... Have you come to the conviction that you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ and express that belief, as the Scripture says, in repenting of sins and confessing Jesus and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? It's so tragic that many in the religious world, as we talked about in Bible class this morning, will preach and teach and practice so many qualities of love and benevolence and mercy and grace and extol those virtues. And yet, as Ron pointed out this morning, when they come to baptism, that's where understanding ceases. Why? Because Satan has done his work extremely well, tragically, and has blocked the mind at that point to the very thing, to the very thing that would make all these other things they extol and seek to practice valid before God, and without which none of that can be and will be valid before God. Because God has designated that in baptism the blood of His only begotten Son is applied to cleanse the sinner from sin, and without that application there can be no cleansing. Therefore, we must understand what the will of the Lord is in its completeness, and we can. And if you have not reach that understanding, please hear the simple words of Jesus. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. How much clearer and simpler could it be? Believe, yes. Repent of your sins, absolutely. Confess Jesus before men, yes. But be baptized for the remission of sins. That's the culminating act of obedient faith that places one into Christ. I realize I may be speaking tonight to those who, if they are accountable, have already done that. And God bless you if you have. And may you understand and appreciate the need to continue to feed upon the Word of God and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you are here as one who needs to obey the gospel, we plead with you to do so. And if you're one here tonight who needs to come home to his first love, having lost that deep appreciation for the righteousness of God and his Word, and therefore no longer living it as you once did, and that failure is public, then repent in that same public way and come home as we stand to sing to encourage you.